All right, Ephesians 4, 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. What does it mean to be a Christian? And many people have different answers to this. Some would say a Christian is just simply someone who believes in God. Others would say a, a Christian is someone who's at some point in their life prayed the sinner's prayer with a degree of faith. Others would even say a Christian is someone who has relatively traditional or conservative viewpoints or standards on different things. Some would say a Christian is someone who reads the Bible and attends church fairly regularly or is a part of a church. Someone would say that Christianity is related to morality, like Christians are the more moral people. I hope that most of you have the sense that truly being a Christian is something more, something different than any of the things I just listed. It's not simply a vague belief in God or gods. Um, It's not even being a moral person. The Pharisees in Jesus' day, the religious leaders, had checklists of behaviors. They were, on many levels, very moral people, but they were far from God. The Bible says a Christian is someone who's been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Some of you would recognize three of the five solas of the Reformation in what I just said. But a Christian is someone who has repented of their sins and put their trust not in their own performance for God, but in Christ's performance for them. And that always brings up this question, if we're just trusting in what someone did for us and what the Son of God did for us, then what do you make of good works? Are you saying that good works don't matter? Well, let's back up in this very letter to chapter 2 for just a moment where Paul himself writes about good works and says this. And I want you to notice this interesting paradox. Beginning in verse 8, he says, For by grace, that is the free kindness of God, you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. In the very next verse, he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And we saw many months ago, if you were walking with, through, a, through the first half of this letter with us, we kind of saw this principal statement. We are saved not by our works, but we are saved for good works. 
So if someone says, I believe in Jesus, but there's no transformation of life, there's no desire to live the way Jesus lived, the Bible itself would say there's no evidence there that that person is actually a Christian. It's probably why I, I prefer terms like follower of Jesus or disciple of Jesus to the term Christian. In addition to the fact that Christian comes with a lot of cultural baggage today because you're associated with like cultural Christianity, Jesus himself says, if anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross and actually follow me. So a Christian is someone who trusts wholly in Jesus as their savior and who follows Jesus as master and Lord. And there's two important parts to what I just said. If you're a Christian, God has already saved you. He's already elected you. He's chosen you. He's justified you, which is just a big word for meaning. He's declared you righteous. He's brought you into the benefits that he has won for you. Um, Paul says early in this letter, the inheritance is already yours. That's why in the very first verse of this letter, he calls this church, he says, you are saints. You are already positionally set apart. That's objectively true. That's the first part. There are a lot of things by virtue of God's grace over your lives that they're already true. Now, part two, if that's true and because that's true, you've got to live like that's true. And we can only live like that's true because it's true, because God is doing a work in us. That's why Paul, at the beginning of this chapter, verse 1 of chapter 4 says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. We didn't earn the calling, but we got it. And now we're in with Christ by faith. And he says, now there's a way that you walk. We started with verse 17 last week where he goes on, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And kind of a quick synopsis of last week's message, if you weren't here, if you don't remember, because this week is going to build on that because we're flowing right through this letter. But Paul goes on to say, because you're set apart to Jesus, there's certain things, this former self that you're to put off and be renewed constantly in the spirit of your mind by God and put on behaviors and thoughts and attitudes that look like Jesus. And now what we come to this morning as we go through the remainder of the letter over the next several weeks is that he's going to get practical, he's going to get specific, and he's going to get actionable. So he's talking about, okay, we're talking about putting off and putting on and this necessity of a renewed mind. Now let's talk about what that looks like. And so this morning's message we're going to go into, and this is kind of part one of two. We'll look at the second part, Lord willing, next Sunday as we gather. But Paul's going to share here what needs to change, why we need to change, and how we can change if we want to. What, why, and how. So first of all, notice the what. And I want to say this isn't an exhaustive list. Okay, He's going to say five things here, five major categories. And he's doing this to illustrate the kinds of things that we identify in our lives and say, this doesn't look like Jesus. This looks like America. Because we're in America. That's, and again, in our gospel community group, we kind of said, Jesus would come today and say, don't just walk like all the Americans do with all of that baggage, okay? So this is suggestive of the kinds of things Jesus is calling us to put off and put on. But I also think it's fascinating as we go through these five things, you'll notice not a whole lot has changed about human nature in 2,000 years. Like these five categories are still kind of front and center in terms of what we as Americans wrestle with 
as kind of key cultural sins. I also want to point out it's not sufficient to simply stop doing something bad. There is a replacement in the Christian life where we're always called to replace something negative with something positive. We're to replace, and you'll see this as we go through these five things, we're called to replace something that looks like the world with something that just looks like Jesus instead of leaving this void and this vacuum just to be immediately filled with the old person that we just tried to put off. So look with me at these five things. First of all, verse 25, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. So the first thing Paul is saying, what needs to change? You need to replace deception with honesty. And I think lying is kind of the currency of our culture. Like everywhere we go in many different kinds of relationships. Like how many of you would say in my work environment, my vocational environment, my school environment, my kids' school environment, or some of you are kids and you're in school, you would say like, yeah, people just lie about all kinds of things. And that's, that's the basic word here is lying. Um, I, I want us to think about like why we lie, and we'll, we'll come back to this in the why section as well. But Brian Chappell talks about how we, we lie generally to put ourselves in the best light, to seek some kind of advantage, or to avoid some kind of consequence. He's kind of right. Especially like we do it to seek an advantage or to avoid consequences for something. But I want you to think about all these kinds of lying because you may be like, well, I'm not the kind of person who would just like lie. But these are other ways we lie. False accusations is a lie misrepresenting someone else's actions or their motives. Um, Posturing is a form of lying. Like feeling superior to other people, posturing yourself in a conversation can be a form of deceitfulness. Um, Misrepresenting facts or misrepresenting our work product. Claiming responsibility for the output of others that's positive or blaming our sin on someone else. Like, yeah, I'm reacting that way, but it's, it's your problem can be a form of lying. Telling a half-truth is a form of lying. Very often, silence is a form of lying. Like, when you're framing a narrative and you say two things that are true, but leave unsaid eight things that are also true, and you know what I said was true, but you are creating a completely false narrative, that happens everywhere. It happens all the time in Christian circles, so we can pat ourselves on the back and be like, well, I didn't lie, but you deceived. And the call here of walking after Christ is to replace all forms of deception with honesty. And notice this positively that he says, you can't replace lying with silence. Like, okay, I just struggle with my mouth, so I guess I'll just shut up. I mean, there is an appropriate time for that. Like, just, I'm not going to say something right this moment. I need to think and process how I'm going to respond. But he's like, when, when you know truth, Christians are called to be truth speakers, not just silent. And that word truth is like that which corresponds to reality. So you see a circumstance, circumstances at work or in your family dynamic, and there's a certain thing that's real or it corresponds with reality. We are called as followers of Jesus, who is the truth, to speak truth. If you made a mistake, own it. If you told a lie before, it's not just like you let the passage of time go through, but he's like, you go back and you speak the truth now about what happened back there. 
So replacing deception with honesty. Second, verses 26 and 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. And this is an interesting one because you may think that Paul would say, stop being angry. Right? Like there's no place for anger in the Christian life. And some people say that. But then you actually study the example and the life of Jesus. And weren't there times that he was seemingly pretty bent out of shape about something really unrighteous or really unjust. And so the principle here is not don't be angry. The principle is replace uncontrolled anger or unrighteous anger with controlled or righteous anger. I think our instinct is to replace anger with numbness or a passivity of like, I know I'm an angry person. And so I'm just going to, anybody ever do this? Like, I'm just going to try not to feel that anger, that frustration. And we can become callous, which is a word that we looked at last week. We can become numb, like intentionally so, to try not to be angry. And it's interesting that the Bible's not saying to do that with your anger. It's saying replace that unrighteous anger with righteous anger. Instead of being mad because someone lied about you or disadvantaged you or something in your life was unfair, he's like, are, are you angry in the way Jesus was angry about this situation out there that is not right, that is not merciful? Do you get angry about the lack of mercy in our culture, about the lack of compassion? But then this point of like, What's this about? He says, don't let the sun go down on your anger, even if it's righteous anger. He's he's saying, not that you stop being frustrated or you stop being like, God, I'm called to do something about this because I see this and it's wrong. But he's saying almost immediately, there may still be conflict in your life, but you've got to lay down the rage. You've got to lay down the desire for revenge. And that's kind of what he's talking about. Like, don't let the sun go down on your, and it's like your very strong anger is literally the word there. And he says, if you don't, you're giving the adversary, you're giving the devil a little foothold in your life to make you a bitter person. So lay down your rage, lay down your desire for revenge, get angry about the kinds of things that made Jesus angry, but then let that lead you into actionable love. As a result, okay? Thirdly, verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Your principle here is replace taking from others with giving to others. And again, note, it's not enough to simply stop depriving other people of their property. As believers, we're actually called to labor with our minds, with our hands, with the gifts that God has given us so that we can be a blessing to other people. I think theft is an equal opportunity employer in our culture. What I mean is I've seen theft all the way from a pastor plagiarizing sermons and stealing from church funds to employees stealing from their employers Like maybe cheating on a timesheet or literally just taking stuff home from the office and like, sweet, now I have a color printer. And it may not be that extreme, but but somehow defrauding an employer or employers very often defrauding employees, not giving them the value that's owed to them for their work, for their contribution to the company culture. Um, People can literally steal, you know, I've had 
ladders stolen from me, nail guns. We've had bikes stolen out of our garage on multiple occasions. It's just, it just happens. Just like lying, there's stealing going on everywhere. But I want to I broaden this out because I'm thinking about objects that we steal, but you can also steal ideas. You can also steal identity. You can steal work product. I mean, there are many different ways I think we as like good people excuse. We're like, I, I didn't, you know, hotwire their car. And that's good that you didn't hotwire their car. But there are other ways of taking something that belongs to someone else. And notice the replacement here. And again, in the words of Brian Chapel, he says, once we sought to deprive others for our good, now, when he's talking about now in Christ, we seek to share with others for their good. And the perspective has shifted from what is best, I think, in the short term just for me to what is my life intended or what, what blessing is my life intended to bring others. And we've turned it around. Fourthly, verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Your fourth principle, he's saying, replace destructive speech with edifying speech. And the word corrupting is interesting because it's not just, notice he doesn't say, um, let no corrupt talk. It's corrupting. And the word literally would be used in that culture of a rottenness. Like you have a rotten piece of fruit. You ever do this? You're going through like the batch of onions or the batch of oranges or limes or whatever it is. And you find the one that has the fuzzy stuff on it, you know, and that's the corrupting one. It's going to lead to the corruption of others around it. That's the literal word he's using here, but he's using it figuratively in the sense of language. And you know the kind of language he's talking about. There's a kind of language that not only corrupts and harms, which is another way of translating this, but it's causing other people harm. And it's causing them to cause harm. I mean, I hate this about, one of the things about gossip, is you notice how gossip breeds more gossip? Like when you're talking about people behind their back and confessing their sins for them, very often the defense of that is that more gossip comes at you and then all of a sudden there's factions and there's this group at work and this group or school or God forbid church, but it happens. Sarcasm, um, criticism, complaining, arguing all the time, profanity, like crass jokes, just coarse talk, which we'll come back to later in this series because he does a whole section on it. And then there's just like empty, endless talk, like people who feel like I just need to be talking all the time about nothing. And all of those are rotten. So he doesn't just say stop talking that way. He says, notice, but instead... Speak in ways that are good for building up. And he goes back to this word where you're supposed to think about like a construction site and literally like putting something together, laying a healthy foundation, erecting those walls, making a structure that's growing up. And he's like, you can do that with your words in other people's lives to help them grow. Or the Christian word is like to edify them, to encourage them, to build them up. Say something appropriate Instead of inappropriate, speak a word of grace and blessing and hope and encouragement in someone's life instead of something that cuts them down. I mean, I would love if our church were known for, like, I don't know, like there should be a word like pause gossip, where it's like you're, you're caught talking about other people behind their back, but you're doing it in a way that's building them up. You're like, man, I had this conversation with so-and-so this week and was so encouraged by what 
God is doing in her life or how she encouraged me or he said this or is attempting to do this in his work or where he's living with his apartment. And I'm so encouraged by that. And that's the idea of building up, fitting the occasion, ministering grace and favor to those who hear. And then finally here, we're talking about the what needs to change. Verses 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. And the principle is he's saying replace malice and resentment with kindness and forgiveness. The first word here, bitterness, is a deep-seated resentment. And some of you have felt this. Some of you have felt someone feeling this toward you. It's like bitterness could be like an envy. You have something I strongly desire. And it goes beyond to almost like this, I, I hate you so much, I want you to lose it because I can't have it. Or I want to see you fail miserably and publicly, just fall flat on your face. Like I would rejoice at your downfall. That's this word, Bitterness. Wrath and anger and clamor kind of equate to a judgmental spirit, to irrational anger, to even violent outbursts of anger, like a hot-tempered person. And as I was reading through this list, I was like, man, we've been through a few difficult years with COVID and the politics around COVID and Black Lives Matter and police violence and critical race theory and stuff here in our own neighborhood around violent crime and drugs and mental health crisis and much more. And do you know what, over that period of time with all these cultural issues that have divided us, do you know what keeps constantly coming out of people? Whatever was in them. Whatever was in them. It is, it is not just led all of our culture into deeper conflict and angst and frustration and fighting. Because some people, when that pressure comes, what oozes out of them is they're already filled with the compassion of Christ. They're already filled with a spirit of peacemaking and forgiveness. So that's the switch here. Is he's not just like, stop being so bitter about this stuff. Stop being so judgmental. Stop being so critical. Stop arguing and fighting and having so much anger and malice toward people who disagree with you politically or culturally or religiously. Or maybe it's just a personal gripe. You're like, our politics align, our religion aligns. I mean, she's right over there in church, but I still hate her. And it's not just stop. It is be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. And if your heart, your life is filled with tenderness and compassion and love and that pressure comes, then what's forced out of you is a loving response. And that loving response may be telling hard truth. Don't get me wrong. But it's still love instead of malice. I mean, just imagine a church culture where no one defends lying. No one's stealing the work of others. There's not hot-tempered people. Speech is not used to tear down. So ill will. Malicious resentment is not coddled because it's coming from certain people. That looks exactly like the world. And friends, you should be able to step out of your work environment, your, your PTO or your HOA, and all the frustration around those kinds of meetings and walk into the church environment and encounter truth and grace and kindness and generosity and, 
And he says forgiveness because he acknowledges we're, we're saved sinners doing life together, so we're still going to hurt each other, and there's still a need and a place for forgiveness. But this would be radically countercultural to walk into a situation where people are telling the truth and working hard so that they can contribute positively into each other's lives and being kind, all these things. Now, this is very important, point two, why we need to change. And these next two points will go very quickly, but I think they're important because I want you to see I'm not encouraging moralism and the Apostle Paul who wrote this letter is not encouraging moralism. In other words, he's not just saying like, I see these surface behaviors, those surface behaviors need to stop, put on these other surface behaviors and look more Christian-y. That's not what he's saying. Okay, why do we need to change? Well, we need to change for the sake of the gospel, verse 1, right, of this chapter. But look at two things from this text. From this text, Paul says we need to change, number one, because we belong to God and to one another. So verse 30, he says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And we talked about this early in the letter, but I expect most of you don't remember that reference. But a seal like, was uh, literally like a king would maybe put a wax uh, ring on a letter and then with a signet ring, press that in. And it's a mark of authenticity. It's a mark of ownership. So it's like when that is being carried by couriers to some distant location to tell maybe like a general on the front line of a war certain directives, he's like, okay, I know there's a, there's a mark of authenticity ownership. Like, I'm actually supposed to do this. My king is telling me to do this. Um, that, that seal can also, in other contexts, be like a protective seal or a promise of some sort. And what we hear in this verse, verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. By the way, you understand there, like the Holy Spirit is a person, third person of the Trinity. He's not a force. Like we don't grieve a, a force. He's, he's personal. And, and he's not flying off the handle in a rage at us because we struggle with sin. But we need to understand our sin does grieve God, but we have an opportunity to honor God and to rejoice his heart. But we belong to God. I belong to my wife and she belongs to me by virtue of these covenant vows that she exchanged. And so if you're like, hey, you have an opportunity here to dishonor your wife, grieve her, or you have an opportunity to act differently, to speak differently, to honor her and to encourage her, none of you would say it's moralistic to do the thing that honors her. And neither is it moralistic to say, I belong to God. I belong to the Spirit. And I want to act in a way and speak in a way that honors him rather than dishonors him, that rejoices him rather than grieves him. And then look at verse 25 where he says, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. And that's, you belong to God, but you also, brothers and sisters, I mean, look around. You, you belong to each other. We are, we are members of the same body. Paul has used that illustration just a little bit earlier in this letter. And imagine trying to deceive or to defraud, to take advantage of one of your own body parts. That's what he, he says, like all this stuff, like the way you lie to each other, the way you steal from each other, the way you hold bitterness and resentment in your hearts toward each other, it's as crazy as doing that with one of your own body members. It'd be like lying to your foot and being like, that door jam is way over there. And then it's like, wham! And you're like, ha, gotcha. Your foot's in pain. And you're like, boom, foot's in pain, but I'm good. No, you're in pain. 
And we don't tend to think that way. But that's, that's how close of an analogy God himself says, this body that I'm building from every people, every nation, every tribe, every tongue, you're one body, you're members of each other. And a reason why we don't speak a certain way, but speak another way instead, is it's like, how would you speak to your own body? How would you speak to your own bride? So that's the first why, because we belong to God and to one another. The second why is because we're called to bless others as God has first blessed us. Verse 32, this is his why. Yes, be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. But notice the why, as God in Christ has forgiven you. He says, if you look around at, at Christian community, it's like, how has God already treated me and treated you and you and you and you? God has already treated us with free and lavish grace, like knowing everything about us. Like you, you think you know how bad that person is? God knows that much more. And he also knows that much more about you. And he has chosen to treat you with grace and forgiveness and kindness and, and hard truth. God doesn't assign bad motives to you. He doesn't gossip about you. Imagine God like taking what he knows about you and pulling someone else aside and giving them a word, even if it's true. He doesn't do that. God knows everything about you, and he still seeks your good. We, we said this morning, this wasn't intentional, but it's in my notes as well. In our confession time, we specifically reflected on the fact that God is slow to anger, but quick to forgive. And how often we in Christian community are quick to anger and slow to forgive. But what we're doing is we're trying to say, like, Lord, as I walk with you, as I have a personal relationship with you and I'm doing life with you, I want to know all these benefits that you are flooding my life with and so that those benefits flow through me and out into the lives of other people that I'm doing life with. And if you've loved me unconditionally, I want to, through you, love other people unconditionally. If you're forgiving me, I want to forgive others and so on. Now, how can we do that? That's the final point. If we want to change, if we want to go through this um, cycle, because we're doing it over and over and over and over until we're home with Jesus. How can we change? Well, notice number one, first of all, we change through the continual renewal of our minds into the image of Jesus. We, we looked at that last week, but I want to bring that back up again right now because I want you to consider how God's renewal of your mind plays a critical role in the five what's that I just mentioned. From lying to truth-telling, there needs to be a change of thinking. There needs to be pattern changes. And what we can do with each of these is think, like, why do I lie? Well, again, if it's, if it's to advantage myself and to avoid consequences for my wrong, like, uh, I don't, like, I would be in trouble if people knew that I did this or failed to do this or forgot. So, um, no, 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 I, I did it. The renewal of our thinking comes in and is like, do I need to be self-protective? Do I need to advantage myself if I live under the care of a God who loves me and takes care of me? No. How do we move from being angry to being angry about the right stuff, like the injustice done to someone else? By the way, you, know, you notice how often Jesus was angry about 
the harm being done to someone else and how patient he was with harm being done to himself. And we're the exact opposite. We're quick-tempered about the harm being done to us because, like, I feel it. And my life was already all about me. And the injustice done to other people, I don't even, I don't even see it. Or I'll, I'll go down in an hour, a month to take care of that in a token way. And we're not really outraged about the right things. Well, how do we change? We, we need to think differently. How do we move from depriving others, stealing other people's intellectual property or property or identity to a way that's generous? We need our thinking to change. How do we go from using our words to corrupt, to destroy, to tear down, to harm, to actually building people up and leaving people encouraged because they've had a conversation with us? Our thinking needs to change. How do we move from a place of bitterness and resentment and wishing that others fail to saying, man, that person really hurt me, but I'm praying for them to also experience the grace of God that I need. I'd love to see them succeed. Because by the way, it's it's probably only in their God-given success that they ever realize how much they harmed you and come back to make things right anyway. But in all of these things, what we need to recognize is, why do I lie? Why am I angry? Why am I stealing? Why are my words so rotten? Why is my heart so rotten? And it's like, well, because I, I want what I want. And, and the American mantra of like autonomy and egocentrism and status and reputation and control and power. And when we want those things and those things are our actual functional God, like I just want to be in control of me and my life. Don't want you to have control. Well, then someone else gets it, and we're mad, frustrated, impatient, slanderous, deceitful, resentful, bitter, angry, because we don't get what we want, because my life's about me, and your life is about you, and that's conflict. But if our, if our minds are renewed to think like Jesus, to love like Jesus, then we're like, and by the way, I'm not saying, like, we switch from, like, my life is all about me to, like, my life is all about you. No, if we're all like, my life is all about Jesus, King Jesus. So I'm learning to love the things that he loves. I'm learning to pattern my life by his grace, by, his, by the work of his spirit in me. After the way he is, then this stuff flows out. So how can we change? Through the continual renewal of our minds into the image of Jesus. And one more thing, by continuing to put off and put on regardless of how we feel. I think that's so important. If you're waiting for the moment that you're like, it would actually be advantageous to me to stop stealing from these other people and then reselling that thing. You may not hit that moment because God's doing this deep transformative work in your life. And, and you may. But for any of these things, sometimes, you know what I sense? Sometimes I sense the renewal happening first. It's like my thinking about something's changing or I'm like, and I struggle with desiring this wrong thing or like lusting after this wrong thing for a long time. And I just... I just see that thing doesn't have the same hold on me anymore. My desires are changing. My, my priorities are changing. I don't know that I'm, I'm cognizant of like a moment in time where I just, that happened. But I see God doing this gracious work over time. Other times, you know what happens is my desires haven't changed. My thinking hasn't changed. And I'm like, but it honors God to tell the truth right now about that person instead of lying about that person. Or it, it honors God, as I did this week, of like seeking out someone I'm angry with and just saying like, hey, I'm angry at you. And I need to look you in the eye and tell you I'm angry at you and I'm sorry. Will you forgive me for that? And even if you don't, 
and I'm talking about more generally, even if you, if you don't forgive me for the ways I've wronged you, I'm being obedient to Christ to go ahead and have a hard conversation that I don't want to have or, or make a damning admission that I don't want to admit about myself and my brokenness. There's a school of thought now, and I'll close with this, that's calling this kind of behavior hypocrisy. It's like if you're doing something and your heart's not in it, then you're a hypocrite. And I guess there's a way you could be a hypocrite about that. But look, I mean, some days I wake up sick or like the beginning of this year where like the hernia discs in my back and I'm in so much pain and I just want to lay around and just feel sorry for myself all day. And guess what? I still have to parent my kids. Do you know why? Because I'm a parent. It's not hypocrisy to be like, well, I don't feel like parenting my kids today, but I guess I will. Well, God's like, you're going to because I made you a parent. And I'm saying in the same way where he's like, I made you a saint. I made you a brother of someone and a sister of someone. I made you family. And I called you my own. So do you know why you got to do certain things in your life? It's because that's who you are. And it's not hypocrisy to pursue this. It's Christ-likeness to pursue this. I got in my car one day, and I guess there's like some kind of satellite radio, which I don't listen to because I'm like listening to sports radio and stuff that's on my phone or whatever, or having phone calls in the car. And I got in my radio, or got, got in my car one day after my wife had driven my car, and she said this wasn't her, so it was probably one of the kids or a, a miracle or something. But um, it, was, it was switched over to satellite radio, and it was a country music station the highway. And I'm like, all right. I mean, I used to, I used to be in blue collar work for a bunch of years. So on the job site, like I've heard plenty of country music, but not recently, but it kind of brought back some, some good feels and some good vibes and stuff. And I'm listening and this song comes on, which like three of you will know. Um, and I don't know the title of it, but it might be something like Tennessee Orange or something. It's basically this girl riding home to her parents. And she's like, uh, I've gone and done a thing, and I know you're going to be worked up, and you're going to be really upset at me, and uh, I'm sorry, but I met this boy, and he stole my heart. And, like, first time I'm hearing this, I was like, I can't believe there's a country music song about this. Like, this is really bad. But then it goes into, like, she's from Georgia, and she's wearing Tennessee orange, and she went to a football game in Knoxville with this guy. And she's like, please don't be mad, but I've kind of flipped sides. <laughs> My point of that is this. She's singing about a dynamic, which I think is one of the most genuine dynamics that any of us could experience, and that is the transformation that love brings into our life. So you grow up in SEC country, like you're going to be committed to your team, but it's like, but I, but I started loving someone more than I loved this thing. And so because of this love for this person who's a real person, this change just happens so naturally. And I'm going to offend some people with that change. Some people are going to push back against that change. But all I'm saying is, friends, like, she's singing about something that should be natural to us, where it's like, what is ultimately working this change in my heart is I have an affection for Jesus. Even more importantly, Jesus has this affection for me and for you. And it's this love that is doing this replacement thing in our lives where it's like, I used to be so committed to this stuff and I never thought I'd be wearing the other jersey, 
We talked about putting off and putting on last week. But here I am wearing the other jer- I'm wearing the Jesus jersey, and I'm not ashamed. And I'm wearing the Jesus jersey because the inner transformation happened first. I'm looking like Jesus. I'm loving Jesus. And there's no shortcuts to this. Paul's saying following Jesus means practicing the way of Jesus and becoming who you already are in Jesus. So let's be a church that helps each other do that. Practice the way of Jesus and step by step progressively become the person that he says, this is already objectively who you are. This is who you're becoming.